east and west. 500 years before Christ, in a little town on the far western border of the settled and civilized world, a strange new power was at work. Something had awakened in the minds and spirits of the men there which was so to influence the world that the slow passage of long time, of century upon century, and the shattering changes they brought, would be powerless to wear away that deep impress. Athens had entered upon her brief and magnificent flowering of genius, which so moulded the world of mind and of spirit that our mind and spirit today are different. We think and feel differently because of what a little Greek town did during a century or two, 2,400 years ago. What was then produced of art and of thought has never been surpassed and very rarely equalled, and the stamp of it is upon all the art and all the thought of the Western world. And yet this full stature of greatness came to pass at a time when the mighty civilizations of the ancient world had perished, and the shadow of effortless barbarism was dark upon the earth. In that black and fierce world, a little centre of white-hot spiritual energy was at work, a new civilization had arisen in Athens, unlike all that had gone before. What brought this new development to pass, how the Greeks were able to achieve all they did, has significance for us today. It is not merely that Greece has a claim upon our attention because we are, by our spiritual and mental inheritance, partly Greek, and cannot escape, if we would, that deep influence which worked with power through the centuries, touching with light of reason and grace of beauty the wild northern savages. She has a direct contribution for us as well. The actual Greek remains are so few and so far away, so separated from us by space and a strange, difficult language, they are felt to be matters for the travellers and the scholars and no more. But in truth, what the Greeks discovered, or rather how they made their discoveries, and how they brought a new world to birth out of the dark confusions of an old world that had crumbled away, is full of meaning for us today, who have seen an old world swept away in the space of a decade or two. It is worth our while, in the confusions and bewilderments of the present, to consider the way by which the Greeks arrived at the clarity of their thought and the affirmation of their art. Very different conditions of life confronted them from those we face, but it is ever to be borne in mind that though the outside of human life changes much, the inside changes little, and the lesson book we cannot graduate from is human experience. Great literature, past or present, is the expression of great knowledge of the human heart. Great art is the expression of a solution of the conflict between the demands of the world without and that within, and in the wisdom of either there would seem to be small progress. Of all that the Greeks did, only a very small part has come down to us, and we have no means of knowing if we have their best. It would be strange if we had. In the convulsions of that world of long ago, there was no law that guaranteed to art the survival of the fittest. But this little remnant preserved by the haphazard of chance shows the high watermark reached in every region of thought and beauty the Greeks entered. No sculpture comparable to theirs, no buildings ever more beautiful, no writings superior. Prose, always late of development, they had time only to touch upon, but they left masterpieces. History has yet to find a greater exponent than Thucydides. Outside of the Bible there is no poetical prose that can touch Plato. In poetry they are all but supreme. No epic is to be mentioned with Homer, no odes to be set beside Pindar, 
Of the four masters of the tragic stage, three are Greek. Little is left of all this wealth of great art. The sculptures, defaced and broken into bits, have crumbled away. The buildings have fallen, the paintings gone forever. Of the writings, all lost, but a very few. We have only the ruin of what was. The world has had no more than that for well on to two thousand years. Yet these few remains of the mighty structure have been a challenge and an incitement to men ever since, and they are among our possessions today which we value as most precious. There is no danger now that the world will not give the Greek genius full recognition. Greek achievement is a fact universally acknowledged. The causes responsible for this achievement, however, are not so generally understood. Rather, is it the fashion nowadays to speak of the Greek miracle, to consider the radiant bloom of Greek genius as having no root in any soil that we can give an account of. The anthropologists are busy indeed, and ready to transport us back into the savage forest where all human things, the Greek things too, had their beginnings. But the seed never explains the flower. Between those strange rites they point us to through the dim vistas of faraway ages and a Greek tragedy, there lies a gap they cannot help us over. The easy way out is to refuse to bridge it and dismiss the need to explain by calling the tragedy a miracle. But in truth the way across is not impassable. Some reasons appear for the mental and spiritual activity which made those few years in Athens productive as no other age in history has been. By universal consent, the Greeks belong to the ancient world. Wherever the line is drawn by this or that historian between the old and the new, the Greeks' unquestioned position is in the old. But they are in it as a matter of centuries only. They have not the hallmarks that give title to a place there. The ancient world, insofar as we can reconstruct it, bears everywhere the same stamp. In Egypt, in Crete, in Mesopotamia, wherever we can read bits of the story, we find the same conditions. A despot enthroned, whose whims and passions are the determining factor in the state, a wretched, subjugated populace, a great priestly organisation to which is handed over the domain of the intellect. This is what we know as the Oriental state today. It has persisted down from the ancient world through thousands of years, never changing in any essential. Only in the last hundred years, less than that, it has shown a semblance of change, made a gesture of outward conformity with the demands of the modern world. But the spirit that informs it is the spirit of the East that never changes. It has remained the same through all the ages, down from the antique world, forever aloof from all that is modern. This state and this spirit were alien to the Greeks. None of the great civilizations that preceded them and surrounded them served as model. With them, something completely new came into the world. They were the first Westerners. The spirit of the West, the modern spirit, is a Greek discovery, and the place of the Greeks is in the modern world. The same cannot be said of Rome. Many things there pointed back to the old world and away to the East. And with the emperors who were gods and fed a brutalised people full of horrors as their dearest form of amusement, the ancient and the oriental state had a true revival. Not that the spirit of Rome was of the Eastern stamp, Common-sense men of affairs were its product, to whom the cogitations of Eastern sages ever seemed the idlest nonsense. What is truth? said Pilate scornfully. But it was equally far removed from the Greek spirit. Greek thought, 
science, mathematics, philosophy, the eager investigation into the nature of the world and the ways of the world, which was the distinguishing mark of Greece, came to an end for many a century when the leadership passed from Greece to Rome. The classical world is a myth insofar as it is conceived of as marked by the same characteristics. Athens and Rome had little in common. That which distinguishes the modern world from the ancient and that which divides the West from the East is the supremacy of mind in the affairs of men. And this came to birth in Greece and lived in Greece alone of all the ancient world. The Greeks were the first intellectualists. In a world where the irrational had played the chief role, they came forward as the protagonists of the mind. The novelty and the importance of this position are difficult for us to realise. The world we live in seems to us a reasonable and comprehensible place. It is a world of definite facts which we know a good deal about. We have found out a number of rules by which the dark and tremendous forces of nature can be made to move so as to further our own purposes, and our main effort is devoted to increasing our power over the outside material of the world. We do not dream of questioning the importance of what acts on the whole in ways we can explain and turn to our advantage. What brings about this attitude is the fact that of all the powers we are endowed with, we are making use preeminently of the reason. We are not soaring above the world on the wings of the imagination or searching into the depths of the world within each one of us by the illumination of the spirit. We are observing what goes on in the world around us and we are reasoning upon our observations. Our chief and characteristic activity is that of the mind. The society we are born into is built upon the idea of the reasonable and emotional experience and intuitive perception are recorded a place.